I do want to encourage you to look at the faith first, and you'll find in the scriptures readings for the rest of the week that carry on the dialogue that started here. Also, questions that you can use for your prayerful reflection or use in a small group or growth group that you're a part of. Well, we're six weeks into this series now, so it's kind of hard to reiterate everything we've done each week. But let me try to set the context for you in case uh, you're coming in fresh so that we might hear this the way that Jesus shared these words. And it starts with the Beatitudes when Jesus shared really good news for people that had gathered on that hill, on that hillside. They were people that probably is best described as those that were poor in spirit. Know that many came to Jesus out of need, many who have been poor, and for them, this is offered as good news. His declaration is that just as Abraham was called by God to be the father of a chosen people, so you are the chosen people, and you're called to be salt and light to the world. And then everything that follows is trying to explain in great detail what that means, that new standard that came to fulfill what Moses shared live into it. So we hear what we share today, very tough subject in that spirit. Last Sunday, we focused upon anger, and Jesus made a very important point that anger ultimately, especially as it has a full continuum, eventually can lead into murder. And we need to keep that in mind because this subject of lust is very much in the same spirit, that lust, when it's allowed to fester when it's focused on. It grows within us. What starts out as innocent desire can become adultery emotionally or even physically. And we need to start out by sharing that, as we shared a few weeks ago when we did the custom-built series and we talked about the bedroom and how to be faithful in that bedroom, that we need to affirm that sexuality is a good thing. It's God-created. These desires that we have within us, God gave to us. And so they need to be affirmed, and we need to repeat that message. They are God-given, and that sexuality is to be affirmed. And But we also need to understand that these are powerful. If left unchecked, if, if not channeled in an appropriate way, they can lead to very destructive, very destructive consequences. But look at what the Bible says about our sexuality. In, in the story of Genesis, as God created Adam and then Eve, Especially, he said these words, Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You hear that? They were both naked and not ashamed. Jesus later in the New Testament echoes these same words. He talks about how the two become one flesh, trying to emphasize the sacredness of marriage. And then we have this book, The Song of Solomon. Song of Songs, it's sometimes referred to. A book full of descriptive language of the romantic feelings of a man and a woman for one another. And you ask yourself, what is this doing in our Bibles? I mean, you read it quite honestly, if you're going to give a moving rating, you've got to give it a PG-13 or awfully close to an R rating. And it's in there to affirm that, that these are God-given desires that we have. It's normal and it's healthy. I think it's helpful to stop and discover where did the negative images of our sexuality get so embedded in our Christian faith? And most scholars would trace it back to one of our early church fathers, St. Augustine. He lived around 400 
probably one of the most influential thinkers of the Christian faith. He shared many good things for our faith, but there's one mistake that he made, and it's a big mistake when it comes to the subject of sexuality. He tied and connected sexual desire with original sin, which really doesn't suggest that when you read the scripture. He, he saw that these desires created by God only to make sure that we procreated and that they distract when we put too much attention to them away from higher pursuits. I invite you, if you're really interested in the subject, to read the Confessions by Augustine. They were written around 397 A.D. In that, he's very honest about his struggle with his sexual desires. He also shares his history. When you look at his history, you begin to understand where his negativity came from. He was raised by a philandering father who encouraged his youthful promiscuity. He also had a mother who was very domineering and wanted him to marry not for love, but for status and for his career advancement. Eventually, after his father died, he ran away from it all, found himself with a celibate Christian community, and there is how he, he was freed from his obsession, his sexual obsession. That influences everything that he writes afterwards. And his writings have made such an impact on our thinking that it's certainly behind so many of the negative images that we have about our sexuality and the shame that we often carry about our bodies. So I encourage you, stop and ask yourself if you carry any of those negative images because it is a gift from God. It is something that should be affirmed and accepted within yourself. Figure out where they've come from and hold them up into the light of the biblical witness that I've just shared with you. So what does Jesus talk about when he describes the lust that he mentions on that hill to that people? He's trying to say that it's a powerful force, a positive force, that also can be destructive. Remember back in 1976 when President Jimmy Carter confessed that he had trouble with lust. How many of you remember that? He was interviewed, and that interview ended up in Playboy magazine, which was part of the scandal with it. But he said these words, I've looked on many women with lust and have committed adultery in my heart many times. You remember the fun that people had with that? Late night comedy had a field day with it. Partly because it, it almost seemed cute compared to some of the indiscretions that many of his predecessors had done. But those people that have read the Sermon on the Mount understood that he just trying to live out that radical purity that he read in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we need to realize that I don't think Jimmy Carter is quite the theologian he needs to be. I don't think he's capturing what Jesus was referring to in his day and his time. When you look at the context and the situation he's dealing with, I think Jesus is talking about something much more serious when he speaks of lust. And you just need to go back to realizing that, that just as anger can lead to murder, Jesus saw that lust can lead to adultery and eventually divorce. They're very parallel. Jesus isn't trying to nitpick. He's trying to point out a real problem. You see, lust was a problem in Jesus' day. 
there's no doubt that when the Roman Empire took over Palestine, that they had their influence. It was a very promiscuous culture, and it infiltrated its way into Judaism. We also know that whenever people are oppressed, that the morality tends to decline. And then you look at verses 31 and 32 that Pastor Aaron just read, and realize that it speaks to something that's very real. He makes reference to the Jew, Jewish law that says that a man can write a divorce decree and his wife can be sent away. But the reality is that law was originally written in a time when men could have more than one wife, and it was for the protection of the woman that if he had diverted his attentions to someone new, she could be set free so that she could find protection somewhere else. It was intended to protect them. And instead, they had turned it around and used it as a way to discard someone on a whim. You see, Judaism had forgotten that marriage is a sacred covenant between people. And Jesus uses the most dramatic language he can cut up come up with, cutting off one's hand, poking one's eyes out just to shock them and wake them up, that when they treat marriage as casually as they were doing in that day, it is no different than adultery. I think Jimmy Carter didn't quite have it captured. So tell me, do you think we have a problem with lust today? Let me share some statistics with you. You know that every second, every second in the United States, 28,258 users are watching pornography on the internet. Every second. Every second, $3,075.64 is being spent on pornography on the internet. 372 people are typing the word adult into a search engine. Every day, there are 37 pornographic videos created in the United States. 68 million porn search queries are conducted every day, representing 25% of all total searches. And 116,000 of these queries are related to child pornography. 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites. 35% of all internet downloads are related to pornography. And here's the shocking thing for me, one-third of porn viewers are women. One-third, a growing problem. And that's having an economic impact. Consider the number of people who are using their work computers to view pornography, and that represents 28% of the workforce. You add all these names up, that means businesses are using, losing billions of dollars when all that's added up to the time lost. The porn industry's net worth is $97 billion. That's enough to feed 4.8 billion people every day. You add all that together, and the porn industry makes more money than the Major League Baseball, than the NFL, and the NBA combined. Think we've got a problem? And here's the sad thing, is the impact that it has on our youth. It's clear that it increases the chances of teenage pregnancy, it raises the risk of depression and lowers one's self-esteem when one consumes that much pornography, and pornography increases the chances of marital infidelity by 300%. I don't see all this to make us feel bad. 
And the answer, the solution is not in suppression. Just as in anger, the solution is not trying to hold it back and tamp it down. You have to acknowledge those feelings. They're real, those desires. Come to us from God. And the more that we try to hide it, make it taboo, it just adds to the shame. And for the people that are really struggling with the addiction and pornography, it just isolates them even more. It pushes them back to the shadows. When the best thing they can do is have someone to help them be held accountable. The solution is not just willpower. That dramatic language of Jesus, please don't let that shame you any more. Ed Dobson shares in his book, and he's titled A Year of Living Like Jesus. He was speaking to a Christian college in Florida, and afterwards, a young man came up to him, and he noticed that he had one eye. The young man explained to him that he had taken Jesus' words literally, and because of the problem he had with lust, he actually gouged out one eye, believe it or not. Ed Dobson was just dumbfounded how anyone could bring themselves to do that, but a little impressed that he had that willingness. And then the young man confessed that he still has a problem with lust with one eye. The solution is not cutting off our hands. It's not poking out our eyes. The solution is found in our hearts. That's where it begins. You know, we can welcome regulation of the porn industry. Boundaries are helpful. Internet filters are a good idea. Putting your computer in a public place so you can be held accountable. Having your cell phone accessible to someone to hold you accountable. They're all good things, but ultimately, lust has got to be solved from the inside out. You have to change the way you look at the world, to change the ways that you look at other people, especially the way we look at the opposite sex. The solution to lust and adultery is realizing it's a matter of the heart. It begins with how our society views and objectifies lust, and realizing our connection with all that, and realizing how much that we have bought into it, and choosing a radical departure from where our world is going, to choose not to focus on body parts, and choose to begin to see the whole person. It was a problem in Jesus' day, it's a problem still today. Jesus specifically spoke to men, but we're learning that it's not just a man's problem, but it's also becoming a female problem as well. And what we have to do is choose to see that person, whether it's on a computer screen or TV or whatever medium we're using, and realize that that person is created by God. To see the person that is there behind them, to realize that that person is someone's daughter or son, someone's sister, that they're a child of God. And God can help us do that. God can be our help. God knows the struggles. If you're struggling with that, he can be there for you to help transform that objectification and seeing someone for the full person they are and loving them with that agape love that Jesus provides. The best message the Christian faith has, I believe, is that Jesus said the two shall become one. It's a reality that you can't bring two bodies together without connecting people's spirits. You're forever connected to that person because of that physical act. Nancy and I were 
having dinner on our patio recently. And our conversation was covering what had happened through the day. And then each of us shared something that was very powerful. I expressed that I felt God telling me something to me that day. It was pricking my conscience, and he was wanting me to act. And when I shared it, I, I couldn't help but get a little misty in the eyes. Nancy shared a fear that she had, something that was also very difficult. That was a very sacred moment. I told her the next day that, you know, last night, it was like we made love, and all we did was just hold hands out of that kindness. That kind of intimacy is something that only comes through that commitment and covenant with one another. Scott McKnight says there's a reason for that. He says that there's a physiological explanation, that our brains produce dopamine whenever we have pleasurable physical contact. It invites us to live that out again, but it also produces oxytocin and vasopressin, which is the messages our brain sends to the rest of our bodies that we belong to each other, which tells us that some of the life's best highs come from that bonding that comes in our enduring relationships. So how do we move beyond the lust that's in our society? How do we do a better job communicating with the next generation this healthy perspective on our sexuality? Sheila Ray Gregory has offered some very helpful practical tips. She's an author and blogger. I don't agree with everything she says, but she certainly gives us some good things to ponder. She tells us, first of all, that we need to realize that members of the opposite sex, we, we see sexuality differently. There's plenty of evidence that when you men are aroused, the, the visual centers of our brain are lit up. But for women, it's the relationship centers. We need to understand we're coming at this differently. We need to also know that lust is not automatic. If spouses are vigilant in cultivating and investing in their relationship, then others will just have little effect on us. Unfortunately, pornography takes away so much time and energy that should be invested in that relationship. And ultimately, it just leads to frustration and a lack of fulfillment. Overcoming lust is a choice. It's a choice to see someone beyond those body parts. Our society has so much work to do. And just read the headlines this week in the Indianapolis Star, you'll see how much we tend to objectify. God can help us make a conscious choice to respect see the humanity of a person. God can help redirect our self-centered desires to love and not objectify. It's possible to separate attraction from beauty with lust. And this is such a strong message we need to send to our adolescents. They need to know there's a distinct distinction between lusting and just normal attraction. You can acknowledge the beauty of someone without taking that next step. And those are skills you're going to need in the workplace more and more will be working side by side with members of the opposite sex. That's why co-ed activities are so valuable to develop platonic relationships with members of the opposite sex. And then we need to honor and acknowledge women for their intelligence, for their ideas, for their creativity. We've come a long way on this, but we have so much more work to do. And finally, we need to understand 
that many women come into a marriage relationship with so many mixed marriages and baggage from, from their previous years. The Me Too movement has let us know how much sexual abuse has taken place and touched so many of us. And how many brought negative messages, told to dress modestly, told to be aware, beware of your impact on men. And so we bring all that into the marriage relationship. All of a sudden, you've got to shift gears. How difficult it is to find that intimacy. So certainly, we need to be understanding of one another as we face it. Well, this is a challenging subject. But I hope I've given you a better understanding of what Jesus meant by lust. I hope we've taken some of the shame and the taboo out of, out of those addictions. And I hope that you hear Jesus' words not as condemnation and judgment, but as affirmation that he will be there to help us face those addictions and move beyond them and learn to love one another with that true agape. Let us pray. Lord, we especially lift up anyone here in this room or, or loved ones that we care about that are struggling with sexual addictions. Help them to know that they can be empowered, that they need to find help and support, and help them know that your spirit will enable them to learn to love others and see them as you see them. Give us that power, that hope on this day. Christ, who is our love,